son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired slaves. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry. And would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, slaving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost And is found. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to believe your word, to trust in Jesus, and to believe that you have truly made us your sons, your children. 
drive this truth deep into our hearts today as we meditate on this parable that Jesus gave us. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. You may remember several weeks ago, <clears throat> we were in Romans 3. I took a break from the series to preach on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I did that because that parable illustrates superbly Paul's message on faith and the atonement in the second half of Romans chapter 3. You could, you could see that sermon just as an extended illustration of the point. And today I'm going to do a similar thing. We're taking a break from Romans 4 to consider the parable of the prodigal son as it's usually called because this parable illustrates beautifully Paul's message of salvation. We could even say sonship by grace alone through faith alone in Romans 4, 1 to 8, which I read earlier. There's, there's no handout today. We're just going to walk through the story and make some observations and applications about God's prodigal grace. And I'll explain that sermon title, Prodigal Grace, in a minute. This parable is perhaps the most familiar story in the history of the world. Its main characters are a father and two sons, and both of the sons come to hate their father. The younger son expresses his hatred in the form of self-indulgence. The elder son expresses his hatred in the form of self-righteousness. Both sons are rebellious sons. Now remember, when you come to the parables in the Gospels and you're trying to figure out which character to identify with, the, the, the rule of thumb is that you identify with the sinner. You're always the sinner in the story, and if the parable has two sinners, you're both sinners. You're both of them. And every one of us is both sinners in this narrative. Sometimes we're the younger, self-indulgent son. On those days, we would rather that our Father in heaven be dead so that we could enjoy our rebellion and satisfy our fleshly desires without guilt and without limitations. At other times, we're the, we're the self-righteous son. On those days, we imagine that our Father in heaven is indebted to us for our faithful service to Him, lo, these many years. In fact, each one of us is quite capable of being both kinds of son on the same day. So there are two unfaithful sons in this story and one gracious father. The main theme of the story is the father's inexplicable love for both of his wayward sons. The father knows at the beginning of the story that neither of his sons really loves him. He knows that both sons only want what their father can give them, maybe what he would someday give them as an inheritance. The younger son's rebellion comes out in the beginning of the story, but the elder son 
It's rebellion comes out at the end of the story. And, and yet, even while knowing this, even while knowing his sons, the sons that he raised, the sons that he knows he's known for a long time, in spite of that, in spite of knowing them better than they know themselves, his love for both of them is undiminished in this story. No love is lost at any point in the parable by the father. His love for his sons is unshakable. We could say unconditional. It's also true that the father's love could never be earned by his sons. The, 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 the son's performance performances could never increase the father's love for them. Do you feel that as you read it? But neither, we feel it when we read it, but neither son got this. You may have noticed that each son has a moment in the story when he tends to think of himself as, as a slave rather than as a son as, and as the father's love as something that needs to kind of be earned, worked for. If, you, if your Bibles are open to Luke 15, look at verse 18 with me in verses 18 and 19. After the prodigal son comes back to his senses, he says to himself, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now here the younger son wants his father just to hire him so that he can work his way back in to his father's favor, to work his way back into son status perhaps. Now, of course, this is a moment of humility, and in a sense, he's correct that he's not worthy to be called a son. That's a true statement. But he also, at the same time, underestimates the fa his father's love for him. He underestimates the grace of his father. He doesn't fully recognize his son's status because he doesn't fully recognize his father's love do you ever underestimate god's love for you the, the 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 bounty of his grace did you ever try to earn your way earn your way back into son status you know you confess your sin to god and ask him to forgive you but it doesn't feel like feel like you're forgiven that maybe doesn't feel like you've done enough so you punish yourself in some way Try to maybe you try to do a bunch of stuff that will make you a more worthy son. Maybe you do that before you come back to God in confession to make him more favorable toward you. You know, maybe you call yourself bad names or tell yourself how stupid you are. Perhaps you do a bunch of good works to try to make up for it. Some people exempt themselves from communion. Because they don't feel worthy. But typically, excommunicating yourself is not the right thing to do. And in, and in, in, in every time, it, it doesn't help God love you or forgive you. It doesn't get you back into the grace of God. Cutting yourself off from God's grace doesn't help you find grace in His eyes. 
In fact, this parable teaches us that those who come to God in humility and repentance belong at the feast. They belong at the feast. The table is where repentant sinners belong. The table is where you belong if you're a son or a daughter of God. Do you believe that you are a child of God by faith alone in His Son? Do you know, do your actions show that you don't need to earn God's love? But the older son also thought he needed to earn his father's love and favor. In fact, this was his problem to a far greater extent. He says to his father in verse 29, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. So what we see here is both, the problem with both sons is a failure to believe and live out what it means to be a son. But here, the older son just makes it explicit that he sees himself as a slave, and he always has. Another translation of the elder son's words is, Lo, these many years I have been slaving for you. Okay, that's, that's the word. That's, that, that's the meaning of that word. It denotes service, the service of a slave, a servile person. And so do you see how both of these sons, at various points along the way, saw themselves more as slaves than as sons? I mean, that's why, the, that's why the younger son left in the first place. He didn't appreciate what it meant to be a son. But neither one recognizes his status before the father. Neither one is fully aware of the depth and the height and the width and the length of the father's love for them both of them are trying uh, both of them are going to be very surprised by what they find out and we're no different we're like both of these sons we're more inclined to earn god's favor than to accept god's unearned mercy we're more comfortable working for God's grace as slaves than we are simply receiving it as sons with open and empty hands. We don't like to be in that position. We want to take responsibility for our sin. We'd like to think that we can. But the gospel says there is nothing we can do about our sin problem. We can't make things right. Not in the ultimate sense. We can't pay for our transgressions. We're helpless. We're truly at God's mercy. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Next month, at the end of October, every year we celebrate the Reformation. And the most important thing that happened during the Protestant Reformation is that the church rediscovered God's grace. It rediscovered the free gospel of grace, which had been lost because it seemed too good to be true and because we humans are more comfortable working for what we get than receiving it. The Reformation happened during the 16th century and, and during the centuries leading up to it, the Roman Catholic Church had come to the conclusion that people could actually earn God's favor and forgiveness 
They had even created a sophisticated system for people to gain favor with God. People could buy God's grace by giving money to the church. They could purchase forgiveness for themselves and their deceased loved ones. They could do penance. They could say a certain number of prayers. They could do certain number of good works. And all of these were ways in which people could take care of their guilt and sin and, and in some way gain favor with God. The church did not see God as a loving Father full of grace and mercy and undying love. They had come to see God merely as an angry Father whose mercy needed to be purchased earned, worked for. And this was central to why Martin Luther posted his famous 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517. 505 years ago, next month, Luther posted his thesis. And Luther Theses, and Luther had, he did this because he had started to read the Bible, and in the Bible he discovered the gospel, the good news of God's free salvation in Christ. The gospel is that Jesus took all of our sin and shame and guilt onto himself on the cross so that we don't have to pay for it ourselves. And now, 505 years later, we're still in need of the same message of God's unearned favor his unmerited love you need to be reminded again and again that God does not love you more when you're reading your Bible praying and working really hard for him he doesn't love you less when you're not he doesn't love you less when you're not doing the spiritual disciplines as you ought to do and when you're working hard now it's certainly possible to grieve God Okay, the sons in this parable grieved their father. We as God's children often grieve our heavenly father. See, those things are both true at the same time. Now, when a human father, a father like me, is grieved, it's not always, it's not always clear that the love is not diminished, right? We're not, we're not as good at that as God is. But God's love is never diminished even when we grieve Him, and we do grieve Him. So I'm not saying it's unimportant whether you commune with God through Scripture reading and prayer. I'm not saying it's unimportant whether you keep in step with the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit and say no to sin and love God by obeying His commandments and so on. All of this is vital to your relationship with God. Holiness and good works are profoundly important to the Christian life. God requires obedience. But none of those things has anything to do with God's love and grace toward you in Christ. Not one of those things has any part in the foundation of your sonship. None of these things make you saved or unsaved. None of these things make you a child of God or not. They are evidence of those things, but not the ground of your salvation. Evidence of salvation, not the ground of your salvation. So none of those things can give or take away your son status. 
And this message, this gospel, which is the only true gospel, is as urgent today as it was 505 years ago. And in another half a millennium, the church will still be in desperate need of internalizing and then living out the truth of God's free gift of forgiveness by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's meditate on this parable and see if we can come to, by God's grace, a deeper understanding of God and His prodigal grace. And so today we'll just focus on the first part, the first half of the parable, which tells the story of the younger son, the prodigal son. Now the word prodigal, it's not a word that we use every day. It means extravagant, lavish, excessive, and sometimes to the point of being reckless. And this is no doubt, this no doubt describes the younger son, the prodigal son who spent his inheritance recklessly and lived extravagantly and did all kinds of excessive things. The elder brother accuses him, surely correctly, of spending his money on harlots. But he's not, but he's not the only one in this story who can be described as prodigal. The father's actions are also prodigal in a different way. In a different way. The father's overflowing love for his wayward son is also extravagant. It's lavish. In fact, the father's grace is even more prodigal than his son's sin. And the elder son thinks it's even reckless. As far as he's concerned, the, the father's extreme love and acceptance of the younger son is just over the top, excessive, wasteful, prodigal. We shouldn't be throwing this party. The father in this story is God. The prodigal son is you and me. We, we've all been this younger son at one point or another. In some ways, we're always the prodigal son, right? Not giving up our sin and coming back to the Father. But we've all had times in our lives when we fit that description more than usual even. And may maybe the prodigal son is you right now. Are you loving your sin more than your Savior? Are you, more, are you more loyal to the desires of your flesh than you are the desires of your Father in heaven? If so, repent and experience the Father's embrace. He always, welcome, he always welcomes His sons back home. That's the point of this story. The point is that when your sins are prodigal, when your sins are excessive and over the top, God's grace is even more prodigal in a different way, but even more prodigal, even more bountiful, more overflowing even than your sin. This is, this is true no matter how abundant and prodigal your sin has been. And, and you experience God's prodigal grace when you forsake your sin and turn back to God in humility and faith as this younger son did. 
Now, if you're not willing to forsake your sin, then as I said, that's evidence that you're not a son. Sons return. Eventually they return, but every repentant son is accepted. So Christ's message in telling this story is that your sin can never outdo God's grace. It can never trump God's grace. That, that's what makes the gospel so astonishing, so wonderful. It doesn't matter what you've done or how low you've sunk. You may have done something that, no, that you think no one on earth could ever forgive you for. You may be thinking, if people knew everything I've done, everything I've thought, everything I've looked at, everything I've said, if people knew all my secrets, they would want me to die and go to hell. And that may be, that may be true. That may be how peop, every person on earth would receive you if they knew everything, if all of your skeletons came out of the closet. But that's not how God looks at you if you're one of his children, one of his sons, by faith in Jesus. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is patient with sinners and he wants those who hate him to come to repentance and be saved. The, the passage that I read after the confession of sin says that God makes peace. The reason he had to make peace is because we were at enmity with him. We were his enemies. But that's what he wants to do. That's what he's in the business of doing. And, and so that those sinners that God loves to see come to repentance and to be saved, that includes the most appalling, the most despicable, the most condemnable of sinners. When you cast yourself on the mercy of God, you receive without fail every time grace that is infinitely greater, infinitely more powerful than all your sin combined. It seems too good to be true, and yet it is. Verse 11, in verse 11, Jesus introduces this, the characters, the three characters. A certain man had two sons. And in verse 12, he reveals the character of, of the younger son and the younger son and, and the younger of them said to his father father give me the portion of goods that falls to me you know, give me my give me my inheritance early the, the thing that every father wants to hear right the son loves his father's money far more than he loves his father he would obviously be happier if his father was just dead. I mean, they would, then he wouldn't have to come to him in this way. The only thing more shocking than this contemptible request is that the father actually grants it. Right? We're shocked by what this, father, what this son adds. But then the, the father grants it. He gives the son what he asks for. The end of verse 12 says that the father divided his livelihood between them. Now his son just told him he wanted him to, he, he wished he, he, he loves his money more than he, wa he wants him. He loves him. And he gives him the inheritance anyway. 
Verses 13 to 16 tell us what happens next. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, all of his belongings, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now we're not told how long it took for this son to spend all the money, but eventually he squandered everything, every last bit of his inheritance, and found himself longing to eat with pigs. Pigs were un... Jesus uses pigs purposely here pigs were unclean animals no respectable jew would would eat or even touch a pig and yet this guy would love nothing more than to eat with the pigs do you see how far far he's fallen he's hit rock bottom he's spiraled down until he can't spiral anymore and it's there at the bottom where he comes to his senses, it says, and realizes how foolish he's been. And this is often how God works with his sons and his daughters. He lets us hit bottom so that we can come to our senses. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? So he finally came to himself he stopped, in other words, he stopped acting, being insane. Sin at its core is insanity. It's, it's mental unhealth. Sin is the failure to be a rational human being. No one in his right mind has ever willfully sinned. Sanity and sin never exist at the same time, in the same moment. Sin, by definition, is madness, irrationality, because it's rebellion against reality. Rebellion against God is rebellion against the very center of reality. You can't rebel against God and be in your right mind. You can't do something that's against God's will and be sane. There's nothing more irrational, more illogical than resisting the will of God. But God in His grace brings the son back. He, brings, he always brings his sons and daughters to their senses. And so the prodigal son finally starts thinking clearly, finally becomes a sane human being again. And what does he do when he comes to himself and regains sanity? What does he do? First thing, but before he comes back, he acknowledges his sin and he repents. That's what David said he did in Psalm 32 that we read in Romans 4, which quotes Psalm 32. Before he acknowledged his sin, his, you know, his bones were rotting. God's hand was heavy on him. He was miserable. But the moment he turned to God and confessed what is true, his sin... He became a sane human being again, with, and he enjoyed the salvation of God again. That's what this son does. The only sing, sane thing to do 
when you're in sin is to repent, to forsake your sin, and to turn to God in faith. Nothing in the universe makes more sense than that, than for a human being to be on his knees before God, a sinner before a holy God, confessing that he is a sinner and asking for God's mercy. Confessing your sins to God is something that you should do regularly as a family, if you're married, as, as a couple, but certainly individually, regularly on your knees, in your prayer closet, and throughout the day, confessing your sins to God. You're never more in your right mind than, where, than when you're humbling yourself before God in that way, acknowledging your sin and seeking God's mercy. So we could say confession of sin to God is necessary for your mental health, your mental well-being, for shalom to exist in you and around you. In verse 18, the prodigal son says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, this, this surely isn't the first time that the prodigal son realized that he had been living in rebellion against God and against his father. He surely had moments when he felt guilty about his sin as he's hiring the harlots and living excessively. Like, like all sons and daughters who are in rebellion, he likely experienced a certain amount of sorrow along the way over his sins. Right? Are we to imagine that he was just carefree with no guilt at all during those years, however long it took to spend his inheritance? No, I don't think so. But until now, until this point in the story, his sorrow over his sin had never resulted in repentance. He knew all along that he was living in rebellion. That's, that, you know, he, he couldn't shake that knowledge, right? He, he knew his father, he grew up, he knew what's right and wrong. But until now, he had loved his sin more than he had loved his father and his God. So he had a sorrow, but we need to talk about what kind of sorrow it was. So God brought him to his senses. Now the son not only acknowledges his sin, but he also turns from it. Now he has what the Bible calls a godly sorrow. And godly sorrow leads to repentance. Rather, worldly sorrow leads to just more sin. And ultimately to death. Scripture speaks of two kinds of sorrow. Did you know that? Paul describes two types of sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There Paul says that there's worldly sorrow, which he says leads to death. It's a sorrow of a cycle of sin that ends in death. And there's a godly sorrow, he says, which leads to life and salvation. And if you're a note taker, you don't have to turn there, but write down 2 Corinthians. Corinthians 7 verse 10 it says godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret but worldly sorrow brings death so it's one thing to it's one thing to acknowledge your sin it's another thing to acknowledge your sin and then to forsake it so it's not enough to acknowledge your sin 
You may be broken up about your sins. You may regret your sin. But if your remorse and your regret don't lead to repentance, to sanctification, then your sorrow is worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. You see, worldly sorrow... It's tricky. It's a liar. And it can never deal with the guilt and the shame of sin. Worldly sorrow doesn't produce repentance. It only produces more sin, which leads to more sorrow, which leads to more sin, which leads to more sorrow. And on and on it goes, ending in death. Some of you may be in this cycle and you need to get out. You need to repent. You need to forsake your sin and return to the Father. This cycle of sin and worldly sorrow, it, it, if, if, there's no, if there's never genuine repentance, it ultimately leads in death. The prodigal son, you see, had been caught up in that cycle. And he was on the brink of death. He was on the brink of death. And so... The question is, are you in the grip of worldly sorrow? Sometimes the question is asked, are you in the grip of sin? But we can also say, are you in the grip of worldly sorrow? Because I know there's sorrow. You don't want to be controlled by your anger, but you are. You don't want to gossip, but you keep finding yourself doing it. You don't want to be a slave to your despair but you never seem to find a way out. You don't want to be ruled by bitterness, but you keep coming back to the vomit of the bitterness. You don't want to look at those images on the internet, but you keep doing it anyway like a slave. You want self-control over your feelings, over your tongue, over your lust, but in the midst of of the battles, you never seem to have that self-control. Well, it's because worldly sorrow is at work and worldly sorrow is powerless over these things as it was for the prodigal son for all those years. And it's powerless because it's directed at self. It serves self rather than God. Worldly sorrow has a facade of heartfelt remorse but it's actually nothing other than a form of self-centeredness. Worldly sorrow is bent in on itself. It's self-seeking and self-serving. It's designed to make you feel less guilty, but it has no way of dealing with the guilt. And worldly, worldly sorrow has no intention of actually turning away from the sin that caused the guilt and the shame. It pretends to have good intentions. It tells you there are good intentions here, but worldly sorrow never leads to anything good. Because down deep, genuine repentance is not its genuine desire. And so we can call worldly sorrow a counterfeit sorrow. Its goal is not to forsake sin. Its goal is to distract you and keep you far away from the good kind of sorrow, from godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. And so if you're 
if your sorrow is not leading you to repentance, I'm not doubting the sorrows there. But you've been duped by worldly sorrow if it's not leading to repentance. It's deceived you into thinking you're actually serious about sin and repentance. And so, Son of God, daughter of God, forsake your sin. Forsake your sin as the prodigal son did. Do whatever you must. Get whatever help or accountability you need. Forsake your sin and turn to your father. The prodigal son's worldly sorrow was transformed into godly sorrow when he started actually loving his father and his God more than he loved himself, more than he loved his sin. You see, worldly sorrow is inwardly focused, but godly sorrow is outwardly focused. Godly sorrow is powerful because it's driven by a sincere love for Christ and others. Godly sorrow is the willingness to die to yourself so that Christ is honored and others are saved uh, and others are served. Son of God, daughter of God, the Lord is calling you to repent of whatever sin is entangling your sins. But in order to repent, you need to have sorrow over your sin that leads to repentance. And in order to have sorrow that leads to repentance, you need to believe that Jesus and His Father are more glorious, more lovely, more wonderful than your sin. You need to love God more than His creation. And in order to love God more than your idols, you need to know that He loved you first. You need to comprehend, as Paul says, the length and width and height and depth of God's love for you in Christ. That's where the power is. That's where the victory is won. Seeing the love of God for you in Christ. Looking at God through the cross and therefore seeing His great love for you. That's where the victory is won at the cross, at the foot of the cross. So whether your sin is major or minor, whether it's been going on for days or years, and there really are no minor sins, your heavenly Father is waiting on you the same way the prodigal father in this parable was waiting on his wayward son. He's not waiting with a critical or judgmental eye. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to repent. God doesn't despise you the way you might despise yourself. He doesn't look down on you the way others do or might if they knew. He's not impatient with you the way you and others are impatient with you. His love is beyond your capacity to comprehend. Paul says that his prayer is that we might know the unknowable love of God in Christ. God's compassion is deeper and higher and wider and longer than your mind will allow you to imagine. Verse 20 says, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, 
his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The verb had compassion. In verse 20, it describes a gut level. It's visceral. This is a gut level compassion. It's passion you feel in your kidneys. And even, there's even an aspect of pity to this kind of compassion. Not condescension, but genuine pity. It's, it's the compassion of a mother toward her sick infant. It's the compassion of Jesus toward the multitudes when they didn't have anything to eat. It's the compassion that Jesus had toward those who were without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. It's compassion of Jesus toward you. And did you notice where the son was when the father first saw him? He was a great way off. The son wasn't in the front yard. He wasn't most of the way up the driveway when the father saw him. He was a long way off, it says. We almost get the impression that the whole, that the whole time the son was gone, gone, the father was walking around on his tiptoes with his eyes on the horizon looking for his son to return. Looking for a sign of his son. And when, he, and, and when the father finally sees him in the distance, he says, I sure hope he's learned his lesson right? No. He, he doesn't say, you know, he, he better not think he can get away with that again. I, I hope he's got some, some things to prove around here before everything's okay. If anything like that happens again, we're done. Not an ounce of that. The only thing the father could think about was the joy of being back in fellowship with his son. The father sprints to his son and he hugs him and he kisses him with unrivaled joy. You see, his delight in his son never waned. He was grieved, to be sure. But his love and his delight never waned. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, I'm possibly worthy to be called your slave. But the father said to his servants, his slaves, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Jesus is always waiting for rebels to come back home. Whether you've been playing the role of the prodigal son for days or years, Jesus wants to restore to you the joy of the salvation that he purchased for you. God is on his tippy toes, as it were, waiting for you to come back home, waiting to seat you at his feast and feed you at his table. You don't have to do penance first. You only need to repent, which means to turn around, to forsake your sin and turn toward God with an open hand. 
You don't have to earn that forgiveness. You don't have to prove to Him that you're really sorry before He accepts you and restores you to the joy of His salvation and seats you at His royal table. You don't have to become a slave first. In fact, you're not a slave, but a son because of the grace of God in Jesus. And the last sentence of verse 24 says, and they began to be merry. Another translation could be, and they began to celebrate, to rejoice, to feast. The father and his servants celebrate the, way, the return of the wayward son. The very last thing on the father's mind at this point is the son's former rebellion. It's in the past. It's forgiven and forgotten. It's been thrown into the deepest part of the ocean. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. The, the father only has his eye on the future. So again, no matter which sin entangles you, no matter how unsuccessful you've been in putting to death the lingering prodigal son in you, God accepts you and restores you when you come to Him believing in His Son, clinging to His cross, looking to Jesus alone, acknowledging your sin and trusting Jesus to save you from sin's penalty and to free you from sin's power. That's what salvation is. Freedom from sin's penalty and sin's power. Your job is not to punish yourself for your sin or to demote yourself to slave status. You're, that, that's not going to help. There's no power there. Your response to God's grace is simply to accept it, to believe that it's free to you, but that it was not free to God who had to pay for it dearly by sending His Son to the cross. And because He did that, you are bought and paid for. You were bought at a price, paid for by the blood of Jesus. There is nothing you can add to it. Now, because of this, in light of this, honor God with your body. Honor God in your life. Sons and daughters of God, Rest in God's love instead of trying to gain it. There's nothing you can do to add to it. No favor to earn. And now go forth from here forsaking your sin, resting in God's love, and rejoicing that you are a child of God by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this good news the good news that's contained in this story, this parable that Jesus told. A story that reveals to us your undying love and your prodigal grace. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe it, to accept it, and to respond with gratitude and genuine repentance. We ask for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.